With Tesla Government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. LC38brand.com, the civil affairs lifestyle brand. A little bit of something for everybody. T-shirts, polos, shorts, hats, flags, posters for your walls, and stickers for everything else. Items for citizen soldiers of USA KPOC and warrior diplomats at Fort Bragg alike. LC38brand.com. It's cool to like your job. events, so to speak, that frequently happen that people are involved in, particularly for Region 2, like I mentioned, the climactic-driven ones, right? So hurricanes, earthquakes uh, down in Puerto Rico and in the Virgin Islands. Um, obviously, some of uh, the uh, flooding and hurricanes that also do come up in the Northeastern time have impacted New York and New Jersey, too. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA Podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode, and we're joined by a repeat guest. Uh, this time in 06, Colonel Marco Bongiovanni. Colonel Bongiovanni serves, serves as a U.S. Army Reserve Civil Affairs Officer and has held a variety of command and staff assignments. He's a graduate of the U.S. Army War College and in his civilian career works as a licensed mental health counselor for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs in New York. Sir, welcome back to the show. Thanks. I appreciate it. I don't know if, uh, if, if there's any benefits to doing this multiple times. Do we, do we get some sort of ribbon or something? No, it's, it's great to you be back. And I Appreciate the invite. Thank you. Well, thank you. And yeah, if listeners uh, may recall or want to go back to the previous episode, that was back, uh, I'm seeing now, in August of 2020. Yeah. I think you had been deployed and we were talking about the International Visitor Leadership Program. So please check that out. Right. That's something under the Department of State. Sir, I wondered, before we get into these questions, talking about what is the emergency preparedness liaison officer uh, position and the experience you had, I wonder if you could share with listeners what you're currently doing in civil affairs. Yeah, so uh, I guess kind of the reason why certainly I reached out to see if there was interest in uh, kind of talking a little bit today about uh, basically what I'm doing in the Army Reserve right now as a broadening assignment is working as an emergency preparedness liaison officer. Um, so outside of the KPOC and, and civil affairs community um, and uh, have been here now about a, just short of a year. And, you know, I've, I've really had an interesting um, time in, in, in sort of learning about this community and I thought it would be something that'd be interesting to share with the greater CA enterprise, uh, more relevant likely to reservists as a career opportunity, um, but certainly uh, of interest uh, to, to any CA, any practitioner of civil affairs. And yeah, so I've, I've been outside of now uh, KPOC for, like I said, about the last year. I, I was at uh, uh, 352 previously as the G3, um, and now it's uh, really a broadening opportunity for me. And emergency preparedness liaison officers, or EPLOs for short. Um, is basically my part-time, uh, what we call TBU uh, assignment uh, as an Army Reservist right now. It's a non, non-MOS, non non-branch specific, an 01 Alpha, you know, for officers uh, type position. And uh, it is definitely a, a great developmental opportunity uh, and one maybe we can, you know, talk a little bit about today what it looks like. Absolutely, sir. Let's go into some of those details. So my understanding is you've been serving as an EPLO in New York State. Yeah. What is that position? Like, basically, what are the mission sets? What are the requirements and tasks? Yeah, so, you know, EPLOs, again, Emergency Preparedness Liaison Officer, we'll, we'll use the acronym kind of going forward, um, are assigned to uh, every state. Um, so every state has uh, EPLOs assigned, and also some of the territories have them. And they sort of align uh, with how um, NORTHCOM, more specifically our North, uh, essentially support the FEMA regions throughout the country, right? So the Federal Emergency Management Administration has 10 regions across the country, and each region is broken down geographically, usually containing a couple different states. And in each FEMA region, you have a defense coordinating officer or a DCO, right? And so that's the important person that really provides all of the DOD representation to FEMA in each of those regions. And they are pretty much exclusively all uh, active duty army officers, generally post-brigade command, 06s, and often at, at a terminal assignment uh, in, in their career. So they're very senior 06s that have commanded at the brigade uh, level. 
And so they are assigned to the FEMA region headquarters. Um, and so as a reservist, if you're looking and interested in the EPLO world and applying to a position, you will see postings often come out. We'll talk a little bit about where you find that information out. Um, but they are essentially assigning you to each state. Uh, there will be a vacancy, for example, where I am here in New York. Uh, they prefer for um, the individuals to live, at least in the state or nearby the state, uh, where they are actually assigned, because most of your duties will all be within that state. And so I, I happen to live in New York City and um, you know, am now uh, the EPO that's assigned to the state of New York uh, for the Army. And so I work kind of uh, there's an interesting sort of command and control relationship. You are uh, sort of ADCON, if we want to think of it that way, to an Army Reserve Command. Uh, it's the 76th, 76th Operational Readiness Command for the Army Reserve. And so anybody who is an Army Reservist is assigned technically to that command. Uh, but you're essentially either OPCON or TACON, depending again on the arrangement, uh, to the Defense Coordinating Officer for that FEMA region, right? And so in my case, I work for uh, Colonel Tom Pike, who is the Defense Coordinating Officer for Region 2. He is located uh, with a small core active duty staff um, at uh, One World Trade Center in New York City, uh, where FEMA Region 2 has its headquarters. Um, and so uh, that is basically how I plug in uh, from a command and control standpoint. And uh, when we're in sort of our part-time status, like I am here right now, uh, actually this, this weekend doing some of my EPLO duties, um, we are focused specifically at um, liaison uh, duties. So we develop relationships and liaise with various nodes throughout the state uh, where we're assigned. Um, that can be uh, active duty military bases that are within the state. Uh, it can be uh, National Guard installations uh, and relationships throughout the state. Um, they can be uh, reserve uh, installations. We, we do have some um, you know, Army Reserve installations in, in certain states. Um, and they can also be a variety of uh, state uh, and potentially county and local resources, too, uh, where you're developing these relationships with um, and sort of liaising as the eyes and ears on the ground, essentially for the defense coordinating officer uh, for that specific region. And there are a, a team of, again, EPLOs that um, have a very joint flavor. So you have Army, Air Force and Navy EPLOs assigned to each state, each have their own sort of. Um, administrative command that they're assigned to that's service specific, uh, but they all tend to, again, be either, <coughs> excuse me, OPCON or TACON to the defense coordinating officer of that region, whether there's a day-to-day -day sort of operation where they're in their part-time sort of TPU status, uh, or if they're actually mobilized and brought on orders uh, to support um, an actual event or response. And, you know, I think what's, what's interesting particularly about the EPLOs is if you live, obviously, in your community, um, you get to develop those relationships in your community, right? And so, you know, being that I live in New York, I really get to develop a whole other set of relationships locally uh, with some pretty senior folks, uh, again, at the various sort of local state um, and also at the FEMA sort of federal level and, and multiple interagency partners at all of those levels too. And, and it's really in your hometown, essentially, right? Or in your home state. And so th those relationships are unique. Um, and I think what makes this EPLO world often have such a flavor of what we do in civil affairs, frankly, um, and, and particularly in the, in the human relationship liaison building often that we do throughout the interagency, or in our cases, when we're working abroad in civil affairs, um, you know, our, our multinational partners as well. Thank you so much. Um, let's try to unpack that a little bit as we go along. And yeah. I wanted to ask you by so region two is my understanding, New York, New Jersey, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. Is that correct, sir? Yeah, yeah. Region two is a little unique because um, it's not geographically contiguous necessarily, right? Um, and so each FEMA region was aligned that way based off of um, you know how uh, the FEMA decided to to sort of align its regions initially. Uh, so yes, New York, New Jersey, and then Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. One of the reasons that specifically it was set up that way too for region two is obviously in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, uh, hurricanes tend to be a, a large uh, climactic impact and. Um, you know, a significant uh, portion of the responses in Region 2 tend to be focused down there. And so I think when they aligned the regions initially, they opted not to give like the region that also has Florida and those other states in the southeast, right, because they are already dealing with much of that. Um, and although we do have uh, weather events that come into the northeast, you know, they tend to be a little less uh, frequent uh, than uh, in the Caribbean. And, and so, uh, you know, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands um, are a large part of the portfolio. 
of Region 2, uh, but tend to be very much focused at, um, you know, disaster response for hurricanes um, or, or climactic type conditions. Okay. Yeah, I guess that leads me into this other question about the emergencies for which you are preparing. So mm-hmm. I think New York has always been a hot target for terrorist activity. It's happened in the past. We've had some big floods in the last couple of years. Earthquakes, not so much. Hurricanes, not too often, but some big storms that have certainly come through. What's a typical event for which you're preparing? We're coming off of some amazing lockdowns and COVID, so there could be airborne contaminants. There could be many other things, a, a football game, a baseball game where it could be a target. And then a follow-up question to that would be, what are the authorities under which, from your view in DOD, working with state and local governments under which we could activate reservists, for example, to help out? Yeah. And so, um, you know, the, the, to the first part, yeah, New York specifically where I work obviously has a unique uh, position within our country and in, in, in some of the, the threats that, that face it. And so when you're working as an EPLO, you're working both in the lens of uh, what the state emergency management has as its priorities, and then obviously what FEMA has as its priorities for that state, as far as how you're going to potentially answer any requirements that come to DOD. Um, and so, you know, New York State has its own emergency management preparedness sort of directorate within the state governance, um, and it has prioritized, um, you know, certain uh, risks to New York. So for New York, for example, it's a terrorist attack, hurricanes or climactic type events, and then floods, right? So you kind of mentioned all three of those a moment ago. Okay. Um, Things like COVID, right, which has really been one of the main focuses, honestly, for Region 2 and, frankly, many of uh, the FEMA regions uh, throughout the country for the last uh, two years, right? So when you think back to uh, the early stages of COVID in 2020, uh, what happened at Javits uh, in New York City, uh, what happened with the comfort coming in um, and all the other federal response authorities that uh, supported COVID response, that was all something that was also funneled through the defense coordinating officer uh, for Region 2 um, and the EPLOs at the time supported that significantly with obviously a large amount of folks that were on orders for periods of time. Um, and, and COVID has since had multiple different sort of mission sets, right? Initially, it was that response package that I mentioned. Uh, then it, it kind of moved into vaccinations. And so uh, there was a vaccination mission that um, many of the FEMA regions also had requirements to DOD that uh, the defense coordinating officers and the EPLOs supported. And then most recently, actually, I was involved in it um, was during Omicron, uh, the surge that happened right over the turn of the year. Um, Many states, um, the president uh, made a a declaration that he was going to um, have active duty military uh, support, uh, particularly hospital augmentation. So it was large amounts of uh, military medical teams uh, that work at active duty military uh, or reserve um, military commands, um, and they were put on orders and to support a variety of hospitals um, around the country uh, during the Omicron surge due to staffing uh, shortfalls and, and real impact to the healthcare infrastructure. So uh, that's one example of something that I did most recently here in New York State um, was actually come on orders for a period of time uh, to work as that liaison between the Title X active duty forces and the state and FEMA, obviously, ultimately in support of FEMA um, and, and then in support of New York State uh, for wherever they had requirements throughout the state. Um, and it ended up being uh, about eight to 10 different hospitals throughout the state, civilian hospitals uh, wow. that our DOD uh, teams augmented. So um, it was an interesting mission and, and just a brief example of uh, kind of what that looks like. COVID has been sort of the anomaly, I would say, in the last few years. But traditionally, the events, so to speak, that frequently happen that EPLOs are involved in particularly for Region 2, like I mentioned, the climactic-driven ones, right? So hurricanes, earthquakes uh, down in Puerto Rico and in the Virgin Islands. Um, obviously, some of the uh, flooding and hurricanes that also do come up the northeastern time have impacted New York and New Jersey, too. Um, and that's primarily been the mission sets that often those will get brought on to orders for. And so when one of those events is sort of brewing, if we want to so, so we're going into sort of hurricane season now, right? Right. So when, when, when they have, when they're anticipating FEMA is, is doing that, FEMA is constantly tracking it with other um, interagency um, uh, partners, right, uh, tracking these storms. And if it looks like one is going to have a significant impact on a landfall area, they'll uh, pre-stage individuals sometimes, right? Some of those will be the active duty folks that work for the defense coordinating officer. They'll, they'll move forward 
um, and kind of get ready. And then if they need to, they'll bring ePlos onto orders to assist for periods of time, again, depending on how long uh, one of those events uh, impacts an area, but tends to be relatively short term, right? And so they bring folks on orders for a couple of weeks, a month, something like that. They support the requirements. And then obviously, as they're in the recovery phase, uh, then uh, sort of those ePlos are, are no longer as needed and they come back off of orders, go back into their traditional sort of reservist status. One other type of event that we do also get in the ePlo world, which is really interesting, um, they have um, uh, national um, special security events. So for example, um, inauguration, um, the State of the Union uh, in New York, uh, we have uh, the UN General Assembly that happens every year. Right. Um, so I had the opportunity to work that last year um, and basically, that's where, um, again, you mentioned authorities earlier. There are certain authorities that support um, national special security events. Uh, they tend to be run by the interagency. And so, like, for example, the UN General Assembly, uh, the U.S. Secret Service um, uh, has the purview of that as a lead federal agency. Um, and then DOD will be in support of uh, that lead federal agency. Right. And so um, there are certain national security events that are set out there. Um, if you think about any of the, you know, Super Bowl, large sporting events tend to fall into that purview, um, you know, large uh, sort of uh, transitions of uh, federal governance, um, you know, any of the large sort of events that occur on a frequent basis throughout the year uh, have often this, this uh, status. Um, and that usually means that either there is um, a active duty military presence that is templated for that or they have things that you know are, are sort of on standby to support those events and requirements. And IPLOs have um, a role uh, when it comes to those events, particular to wherever state uh, that the, that those are going to be in. Um, IPLOs may be brought onto orders for periods of time to assist those. Um, and you mentioned, you know, authorities is really what it all comes down to when you're talking about defense, uh, DISCA, right? Defense um, yeah, support for right. Yeah. Um, and so. Uh, you, you have sort of two different authorities. You have authorities that are uh, set sort of in the sense of um, there's a standing uh, NORTHCOM op order um, that has uh, certain resources that are allocated to NORTHCOM as a combatant command uh, to respond to particular, uh, either it's national security events, like I mentioned, uh, or uh, primarily to uh, disaster response. Um, NORTHCOM obviously has multiple mission sets, Homeland Defense being, you know, its most critical one, but also uh, DISCA um, as one of its primary missions as well. Um, and so authorities um, are always going to be something that drive the DISCA response process because DOD is never going to be a lead agency, right? Or very, very rarely. It's always going to be the port of FEMA usually, and then FEMA in support of whatever the state or local authority is that specifically requested that. Um, aside from maybe those, like I mentioned, unique national special security events, right? That have a little bit of a different flavor because they are also resourced differently. Um, and are funded differently. Um, generally, uh, again, DOD is always going to be a supporting agency. And if you think about sort of the language I'm using, like doesn't sound too different than civil affairs, right? Like when yeah. we're operating, let's say, um, with our, um, our interagency partners like uh, Department of State, for example, or USAID, right? Mm -hmm. uh, CA or DOD is never usually going to be the lead role in that, right? We're always going to be in support of some interagency partner um, or multinational entity. Um, so the, the flavor, uh, when you look at it, of DISCA tends to often look very much like civil affairs. And, and, and that was something that really kind of struck me initially about this community um, and, and, and how we sort of create these relationships, very much like we would create those relationships um, in the civil affairs community. Okay. So I wanted to go back a little bit, sir, to um, Region 2, for example, where you are. Two states, two territories. Does each one have an EPLO? Do you have colleagues who are analogous to you in each one of those levels, regardless yeah. of the size of the state and how complicated it may be? Yeah, good question. So um, I mentioned there's a joint flavor to, to EPLOS, right? And so every state has um, an army, um, a, a navy, and an air force um, EPLO team assigned to it, right? And again, I, I talk more specifically about the army one. They're, they're all army reservists. Um, but similarly, I have colleagues that are in the air force and in the navy assigned to their own unique commands within their service um, that also are reservists and support. Um, uh, ultimately, we all support the defense coordinating officer within that FEMA region, right? Okay. Um, there are um, teams that are assigned to every state. So New York's a little, a little different um, because it is one of the states that has uh, much more often a focus just of national security and of uh, um, the potential threat levels. 
Uh, California is similar. There are a couple states that kind of fall into that category. Um, it's a standard EPLO team, if you think about it that way, right? And I'm talking again, Army specific, um, is an 06. Um, I have a deputy 05, um, and I have an E7 NCO, right? So it's a three-person team. Okay. Uh, most states only have two. They'll have an 06 and an NCO. Um, and so some states have the addition of um, an 05 deputy, uh, New York being one of those. And then uh, the other uh, sister services, so your Navy, your Air Force, will also generally have two individuals. Um, we'll have an 06 and potentially an 05 or some type of NCO also. It's a little bit different with the sister services, again, depending on the resources that they have. But each state has one specifically assigned. Um, and so I have colleagues, too, that uh, have, are, are the, the New Jersey Army EPLO, right? Another 06. There is a EPLO in Puerto Rico and an EPLO in the Virgin Islands. Um, so there's actually four Army EPLOs within um, Region 2, um, if you want to look at it that way, right? Yeah. Um, and the, the teams, like I said, are all um, <coughs> made up of reservists. Um, and on the Army side, again, all those positions, like I mentioned, the 06, the 05, and the E7, uh, non, uh, you know, there are O1 Alpha, uh, the NCO slot as well. It's a non-branch specific uh, or MOS specific position. Um, and so they are all broadening in nature. Separate from that, um, there is what they call the regional EPLO teams as well. So a little bit nuanced, right? Um, the regional EPLO teams uh, exist for each region, right? And so there is a separate group of reservists, also, again, with a joint flavor. And now we're actually adding Coast Guard and Marines into there as well. Okay. Um, and so uh, really, it's a joint entity at that level. Um, these work at the region level, right? And so there are slots for 06s, 05s, 04s. Uh, I think there's even some captain slots in some of the regions. Uh, each region looks a little bit different. And they specifically work for the region, right? So they work uh, as for region two, um, there is a, uh, a group of reservists, again, for all those uh, sister brand or all the, the joint uh, flavor, like I mentioned. Um, and they, again, support uh, the defense coordinating officer, but again, at the region level. And why do they have these regional teams? They're basically used to, to augment uh, requirements, right? And so um, they realize that, you know, one EPLO team of, you know, two or three people can't really be expected to provide, um, you know, potential response to all the requirements that might come up in the region. And so they're almost like a surge capacity that then uh, the, the defense coordinating officer has uh, not only to augment his small, his or her small um, core staff that are active duty um, military, uh, active duty army, not only to augment those folks, uh, but also to be used in separate requirements should they come up where maybe the EPLO is not uh, available or has already been um, engaged somewhere else, right? And so they have these regional teams that again are assigned to each FEMA region working specifically for the defense supporting officer that again have a variety of different uh, rank structures and could be another opportunity uh, for folks looking and that are interested in this community uh, to, to come into it. Yeah, it, it sounds fascinating. And at the second half of the show, I want to get into more detail on the connection with civil affairs. But um, mm -hmm. to, to close up, if we can, this first half, um, my understanding from what I recall, I guess, was your background. You started your first nine or 10 or so years uh, as a logistician mm -hmm. and then civil affairs. So, I mean, the logistics background is incredibly well, beneficial to to what you have going on as an EPLO, but yeah, what would you say is the typical background of people who serve in these positions? Yeah, um, I mean, I would say it, it it should be somebody. Usually, the O sixes they look for are more senior folks, and so you know they look for folks that are potentially even post brigade command or at least um, you know close to maybe their retirement date. So um, we tend to have my peers tend to, to to be a little bit more senior than maybe even I am at this moment. Um, you know, I think uh, people see the EPLO community not only as broadening, but also as potentially a, a terminal assignment. So we tend to see some senior folks that come into the community that often retire from this community. Um, you know, there are, um, uh, I, I think, some aspects uh, for, for who, um, who fit the, the, the sort of, you know, what, what flavor do you want, right, in a person when they're going to become an EPLO, let's say. And I would say a couple. Um, you want somebody who is comfortable building relationships, right? So I think that has a very civil affairs flavor to it just from the start, right? Um, you want somebody who also understands that DOD cannot be in the lead in most of the requirements that EPLO is going to be asked to do, right? And yeah. so, you know, I'm sure you're, you're familiar, and, and, and as many of the listeners probably are, 
that when we come into the room as DOD, sometimes our mindset has to be kind of checked at the door, right, about how we engage particularly with the interagency. Um, and particularly in this community where you have not only FEMA, we're always going to be in support of FEMA, but it's going to be also in support of the state or local authority that actually requested the, 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 the requirement, right? Um, generally, uh, the requirements, let's say, for uh, disaster response are requested first from the county or city level to the state, and then the state to FEMA, and then FEMA turns around and talks to DOD to see if they can resource it, if it is something that they're going to pass to DOD. Sometimes the president will commit directly, right? Like I mentioned earlier, uh, when President Biden committed uh, for the COVID response during Omicron, uh, so top down, right, in that sense. But the vast majority of times, in fact, they want it to work that way is to come bottom up, right? And so, yeah. you know, DOD is only involved um, as a last resort. Didn't really talk too much about the National Guard, but you think about it, the National Guard is extremely capable and usually is the primary source for most states to address many of these issues we're talking about. Uh, New York, for example, has a very capable uh, National Guard. um, And and essentially, vast majority of requirements may never even come up to FEMA because the state is able to internally um, meet those uh, requirements by utilizing its National Guard, right? In whatever capacity, it has different duty statuses um, and different ways of um, you know, funding uh, and resourcing, let's say, requirements within the state. Um, so that's a, a separate, you know, kind of discussion from this, but that is, is going on concurrently, obviously, to any federal that really might be happening. And it's really the, the last resort if you want to think about it that way. Um, so again, somebody who is comfortable building relationships, uh, somebody who is, is understanding that DOD is likely not going to be in the role uh, that it normally is, right? So it's not going to be a lead federal agency necessarily. And I think also somebody too that has knowledge of working with interagency, right? Um, and so understanding the various levels, just like I just mentioned, you know, if you think about how we develop relationships with um, State Department or USAID, we understand that there's multiple layers of relationships in there. Um, and obviously with the host nations too that we might be working with. Um, so I think it's somebody who's comfortable, you know, working in that space um, and knowledgeable about that. I wouldn't say that you know, any necessarily one branch could be more favored than another. Like I said, they are, are non-branch specific positions, but civil affairs just rings that, right? When you think about those oh, yeah. qualities. Um, and so somebody who, who has worked in that field um, would likely be successful as an EPLO too, because they're going to already have that understanding. Um, many of my colleagues maybe came from uh, outside of, let's say, civil affairs and, and worked just in the operational force of their unique branch, maybe. Um, and may not have had that experience ever of working with interagency, let's say, uh, prior to coming into an equal position. So for them, um, sometimes that that adjustment can be challenging, uh, particularly if their if their first mission set is doing something like COVID, for example, right? Yeah. Um, that was you know very large in scope. Thank you, sir. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, we'll dive into some more detail about the connection between uploads and civil affairs. Go into these questions about active duty reserve and any tips that you have about pros and cons really of working in in this position. We'll be right back. Everywhere you look, there's a barrage of emails and information telling you what everybody has done, is doing, or plans to do, all in excruciating detail. But access is only half the battle. You also need information presented in a usable form. But that takes work, and the more information you have, the more work it takes. Tesla government takes on these issues so that your office or agency can fully exploit the data you already have. Our knowledge management experts organize and curate your internal data. Our open source research augments your knowledge base with strategic insights from our globally experienced team. And our data visualization turns complex data into compelling visuals, while our community building makes sure everyone benefits by leveraging collective knowledge. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. LC38brand.com, the civil affairs lifestyle brand. Something for everyone. The world traveler, the civil engager, the warrior diplomat. We got t-shirts, polos, shorts, hats, flags and posters for your walls, and stickers for everything else. Celebrating the heritage of civil affairs, from the civil reconnaissance of Lewis and Clark through the monuments men of World War II and companies of Vietnam. Repping the present teams of the Global War on Terror, with items for citizen soldiers of use of KPOC and warrior diplomats at Fort Bragg alike. Collections include suits and shoots for fans of jumping out of airplanes and looking good, 
Pineland to remember your trip to the People's Republic, and Lewis and Clark to honor the two party animals who popularized huge DTS vouchers. You want Pipox? We got Pipox. New items all the time. Custom flags, stickers, and shirts? Send us an email. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram at LC38Brand or contact us at info at LC38Brand.com. LC38Brand.com. It's cool to like your job. For an upcoming podcast or know someone who may be a good person to interview, contact us at capodcasting at gmail.com. Welcome back to the 1CA podcast. And our guest today is Colonel Marco Bonduani. We're talking about the emergency preparedness liaison officer positions. Sir, you've been serving as an EPLO in Region 2, covering New York, New Jersey, Puerto Rico, and Virgin Islands. We've gone into some detail in the first half about the connection to civil affairs, the backgrounds of individuals, and how CA is pretty relevant to what this uh, this role takes on, what the mission sets are. I wanted to ask you a question about the skills that civil affairs officers and, and the senior NCOs who are eligible for the positions may bring to the table. So backgrounds aside, the skills that we have in CA and... Um, you know, our, our Bible, so to speak, for CA is FM 357 in the Army, at least. Civil recon, civil engagement, civil knowledge integration, and so on. What are some of those skills that you bring to the table and that you think others in CA could apply to being an EPLO? Yeah, no, great question. I think one of the things that when I came into this community, right, um, you know, I, I actually one day pulled up 3-57 and I just I just put in DISCA, right, uh, defense uh support civil authority. And, and it appears multiple times at 3-57. There's a whole section about it, right? Um, yeah. But how many times, if you think about it, has civil affairs really been involved directly in DISCA, right? And very few times, right? I know um, Major General Guthrie, I think, reported something uh, when, during one of the Civil Affairs Association presentations uh, several months ago, talked a little bit about his role in Operation Allied Welcome. He wasn't necessarily, you know, just focused at civil affairs. He was as a um, as a readiness division commander, but, you know, rarely do we do any type of exercises or certainly training, maybe even uh, on the reserve side that has a unique disc of flavor, right? But um, it does appear in our doctrine multiple times, right? There is uh, doctrinal references in there. And I know, I believe there's some work, uh, again, this is Colonel B speaking, so I don't necessarily know the, the details, of, but I believe there's some work being done right now at the schoolhouse through the proponency level uh, to try and identify better um, how uh, DISCA specifically and, and civil affairs uh, kind of nest, right? Um, but yeah, the, the, if you think about um, how we, uh, you know, paint uh, the, the civil environment, right, um, in civil affairs, and, um, you know, one of the primary missions for an EPLO is to liaise, right? And so right. Um, liaisoning throughout your state, for me here in New York, for example, uh, that looks like building relationships with all the active duty nodes throughout the state, right? So I'm going to active duty installations here in New York State. We have not many, but we do have some Fort Drum, for example, right? So I'll go up there and I'll build a relationship with uh, the 10th Mountain Commander and his staff, um, usually through the garrison channels, right? So um, on the active duty side, on the Army side, it's IMCOM, uh, Installation Management Command, right? That tends to have oversight of most of those installations. And so we're building relationships with those individuals. Uh, most uh, garrisons on the Army side will have an emergency manager who's assigned to that post, right? Generally a civilian, a senior a GS civilian. And he may also have some military that are also assigned uh, to do that as part of the tenant units uh, that are assigned to that installation, right? So building relationships with those types of nodes. I mentioned the National Guard, right? So another layer of relationships. Um, if you think about it from, from my standpoint as an EPLO, my, my, my primary customer, aside from the active duty, is really the New York National Guard. Um, and so I develop a close relationship with the J3 at the Joint Force Headquarters here in New York. Um, and similarly, my peers do it at, at their state level, uh, because if it overwhelms the National Guard and the National Guard is not able to meet the requirements, let's say that the state of New York is asking of it to respond to XYZ, uh, let's say, natural disaster, uh, the, the J3 is the one who's saying, hey, we can't do this, right? And so the relationship that I have with him is important to be able to give the defense coordinating officer then 
uh, visibility of things that might be coming down the pipeline now uh, where the state is going to turn around and ask FEMA, let's say, for additional assets, right? So uh, New York National Guard, another layer there. Um, I mentioned also that, that each state has its own emergency service directorate, right? And so each state has, sometimes it sits in a different spot within the state governance um, in, in New York, there is its own entity. Um, and so developing a relationship with those individuals who tend to be pretty senior individuals in the state government um, and are generally uh, politically appointed. And so, you know, tend to uh, often change out. Um, not much unlike we would see again in the uh, civil affairs community working with, um, you know, Department of State uh, or other senior interagency. Um, and then at the, at the local level, uh, so, in New York specifically, um, I have contacts that I've also developed in New York City, right? And so like you would see sometimes in civil affairs where you've got, you know, your, if you wanna call them strategic level relationships, right? Your, your, I don't necessarily know if you wanna call them operational level relationships, but then you've got your tactical level relationships too, right? right? Um, and so it could span from, you know, I've got a relationship with the ambassador or then your very senior individual in a, in, in a host nation uh, governance, all the way down to your local level uh, political leaders, right? Or local level uh, community leaders, right? That we might have those relationships with in civil affairs. And it, it, it almost is a, um, a reverse image in the disco world, right? So I've got relationships with uh, individuals that work in New York City governance. Uh, New York City, for example, has its own uh, emergency service uh, office as well for the city of New York. Um, New York City obviously is an anomaly too because it's such a large city um, and has a, a tremendous amount of capabilities just within the city governance to be able to respond uh, to requirements. So uh, certain cities throughout our country are at that level, right, where it's almost like it's another, um, you know, whole set of resources on their own uh, that are at the city level to respond to requirements. So um, you've got the three-tiered sort of relationship there. Um, and then there are also some other sort of interesting relationships that you develop sometimes. So, um, for example, this weekend, I'm up here in central New York, uh, developing some relationships with um, a training center that New York State has for emergency response. Um, and so, um, you know, you develop these sort of unique relationships often on the training side, too, because you're looking for opportunities also to be able to plug into training exercises, uh, not necessarily to be um, a direct participant, but sometimes just be someone who's there. Um, and, and can represent, let's say, uh, the, the DISCA hat uh, that, that may come up in an exercise. So later this summer, we have an exercise up at Fort Drum. Um, every year, most active duty installations will do emergency response exercises, and sometimes they'll have also uh, DISCA flavors that are incorporated into those exercises, part of their validation uh, that they're required to do on a yearly basis uh, for installation um, emergency response. Um, and so we have an exercise component too that we kind of play a role in and sometimes use some of our annual training time to, to support those different types of exercises. So it's a very unique kind of, um, uh, I'd say, um, schedule for reservists too, right? You're not necessarily doing the traditional um, one weekend a month, uh, you know, two weeks in a block set of time uh, during the summer. Um, we tend to kind of mix and match our stuff uh, based off of when there are requirements or when we have the ability to make uh, relationships. Um, I'll add another quick one. Um, we went to visit Niagara Falls here in New York State, right? Key civil infrastructure. They have a, a massive hydroelectric dam up there, one of the largest in the Northeast, right? So yeah. we get to do those type of things too, is uh, assess, if you want to think about it, how we assess things on civil affairs side of the house. We're not necessarily assessing it in the same frame as civil affairs, uh, but we, we, we're, we're trying to build those relationships, have knowledge about those different key uh, critical civil infrastructure, also nodes um, throughout the state, uh, just so we're aware about requirements that if there was uh, impact uh, for a disaster or a terrorist attack or any type of incident, that we would know, you know what are the key uh, civil infrastructure nodes, for example, um, that could be impacted throughout the state. Exactly. I wanted to touched on something you talked about, sir, about exercises. I'm here in Arizona, and I know that the state of Arizona, the counties out here, the cities out here have an EPLO, right? And they also yep. help to work on responses like uh, tabletop and then out in the field. Some of them might be a forest fire and how the agencies come together. Uh, that happens a lot. Another one I saw that's coming up in, in the next couple of months is something about a, a UAS that gets ingested into the engine of a plane by the Sky Harbor Airport, plane crashes, how do people respond? Are all those different scenarios an option, do you believe, or would be helpful for 
active duty or reserve CA units to plug in to do training? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the piece where we're still developing, like what that looks like, right? Like I mentioned in 3-57, there are multiple references to CA support to disc in there, right? But there isn't necessarily, I think, um, uh, at, a, at, a, at a large scope level. Um, you know, I'm sure there are exercises that locally um, reserve civil affairs units may participate in that have a disc of flavor. Um, there are exercises that do happen in the reserve component on a yearly basis, uh, happen up at Fort McCoy uh, and the Scatatuck Training Center um, is a big one too, where there's a lot of interagency uh, play. And so there are units that have to get validated too, that have a primary, let's say, um, DISCA or Homeland Defense type mission, right? And, and many of those are in the reserve component. So there are maybe some overlaps naturally there at times um, where civil affairs, you know, may have uh, some type of a role. But, you know, I, I think that's an area still that probably still has to be further developed is what does that relationship look like? Um, and, and I think most importantly, our doctrine has to drive it, right? And so, you know, it, it does mention in 3-57, like I said, uh, multiple references to how civil affairs support the DISCA. But I think just given our requirements, too, that have historically um, been um, levied on civil affairs and the asks that, you know, uh, the military has, has had for us, um, you know, DISCA hasn't been necessarily a primary focus, right? And so we still have to probably do some work to figure that out. But in the uh, you know great power competition environment that we're in, obviously Homeland Defense uh, key mission, the key mission of Northcom, and so you know I, I, it makes me think too as a civil affairs officer, like you know if there was a, 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 a huge um, you know um, event that occurred somewhere in our country uh, that um, uh, you know really challenged Homeland Defense, what would civil affairs do in that? In that situation, right? Yeah. And, and how would we be asked to respond potentially? And you could span it anywhere from you know massive cyber threat to uh, you know uh, to, to unlikely, but you know kinetic type action, right? To probably what we would normally likely more see is the passive type of um, impact. And certainly with things going on globally right now, um, there are different uh, areas throughout our country that uh, ha have high risk um, uh, threats right now, right? That are impacting. Right. So. Uh, it is it is an interesting thing. I, I think something that we need to look at maybe more as a community. Again, this is uh, Colonel Bonjani's thoughts, but um, you know, how how do we respond to that type of situation if there was a really large um, DISCA or just a really large Homeland Defense requirement that came up, um, where uh, they may need to have more involvement in civil affairs? The National Guard doesn't have the density, right? Uh, so at the National Guard level, there isn't. Um, you know, there are some officers that you found sprinkled throughout formation sometimes, but they tend to be just planners. Um, right. They don't really have any uh, tactical capacity. Um, and then on the active side, obviously, the mission sets that they are often frequently asked to do um, are, are so uh, vast that it's unlikely that the active duty civil affairs, too, would be able to fully uh, meet any requirements. So it would have to be, you know, throughout the force um, uh, response, likely, uh, should there be requirements that come up. Yeah, yeah. Good questions for us to look at. Uh, so I wanted to ask a couple other questions. You talked about how your TPU status, but you've taken on this position, this tour. In the regions, you have Army, Navy, and Air Force officers, and then an E-7, so uh, O-6, and then E-7. At the regional level, you mentioned plugging in Marine Corps, Coast Guard. Yep. So can both active and, res and reserve CA personnel apply for those positions that are either at the, at the, the state level or the regional level, and um, how long is the tour that you have? Yeah, good questions. Um, so, from the EPLO standpoint, uh, it is reserve specific. So, unfortunately, our, our brothers and sisters on the active duty side wouldn't necessarily have um, opportunities there, right? However, uh, each defense coordinating officer, like I mentioned, does have a core of active duty Army officers um, and NCOs that are assigned to each of those regions. Those are are posted in the normal sort of Army on the active side, uh, how they do their assignments there, right? And so those those officers and COs are assigned directly to our North, um, and so you know there are definitely some small probably opportunities there. Uh, but again, you're coming outside of the civil affairs community to do that as a broadening assignment, even on active duty. But on the reserve side, yes, we do at the state level have uh, the flavor of Army, Navy, and Air Force, and at the regional level uh, also we have a usually. Uh, 05 or 06 Marine Corps uh, reservist. And so they are assigned to, again, their own Marine Reserve Command and potential opportunities there for uh, you know Marine Reserve Civil Affairs. Obviously, it's a very small community too. 
uh, on the reserve side for um, for marine EPLOS. They do exist out there in the force. And, and like I mentioned too, in the uh, regional uh, teams that exist in each of the FEMA regions, uh, there are multiple billets in there for 04, 05, uh, 06, uh, E-series as well, anywhere up to, I think, E8. There's one E8 position, E7, E6 positions. Um, and most of those are all, again, uh, non-MOS uh, or, or branch specific. And so you know, there are opportunities there. How are they posted? I guess it's probably the question, too, that a lot of reservists might have. If you get S1 net, you probably get uh, in there sometimes uh, announcements yep. about EPLOS, right? So 76th Operational Readiness Command is who uh, kind of you are assigned to as an Army reservist. They are very good at trying to recruit new talent. And so they will send out announcements about positions that have come open. They, there, there is a tenure. That was a good question that you had. So tenure is normally 36 months um, with the opportunity to do up to two additional 12-month extensions that are kind of reviewed on a case-by-case basis, right? So they try to keep people from just, you know, homesteading in the community for a long time because it is yeah. a broadening type assignment and you're out of the operational force, so to speak, while you're doing that, right? There, there are definitely requirements though, right? Like I mentioned, while you're not necessarily the traditional sort of reservist where you're going uh, again into drill um, and you don't necessarily have a, a large amount of people who you're responsible for directly, you could be asked to come up on orders to support something for multiple months, right? And you, you're going to be obviously based here in CONUS. Um, so there really isn't any kind of deployment requirements overseas, you know, when you're slotted as an EPLO. However, uh, you know, you could be asked to come on orders. Obviously, the teams that supported COVID uh, were often on orders for the better part of two and a half years. So, um, you know, there are definitely some challenges sometimes to folks in the EPLO world and balancing their civilian careers. Um, but they tend to be pretty flexible because. Uh, each region will also try to assist it, the other regions at time. There are actually relationships between the re- regions to, to to back up requirements that may come up. And so they're, they're pretty good at trying to make sure that they give folks the opportunity if they've got things in their personal lives or in their civilian uh, work lives that they need to balance, uh, that they have the opportunity to. But there are, again, seasons and stretches too, uh, like for region two, when hurricane season starts, that tends to be when our work picks up. And so yeah. that's when requirements tend to uh, uh, come more frequently. But yeah, the, there are some great opportunities out there, definitely. And so when you see a posting like that on S1Net, or again, another avenue can be to reach out directly to the 76 Operational Readiness Command. The EPLO group specifically is who manages us. It's actually a, an 06 command uh, who uh, is in charge of a staff, a core staff that manages administratively all the Army EPLOs. Um, so opportunities can be applied for. They are uh, boarded positions, so they are selective in nature. Um, okay. Just internal to the command. So uh, you have to put together a packet. Um, it's reviewed by a couple different levels within uh, not only the, the Region 2 and the Defense Coordinating Officer, but also on the Army Reserve side, just to make sure you meet requirements. You know, the very standard basics, like you would have of any Army Reserve position, you, you can't be flagged, you have to be, you know, PT test, height, weight, all those standards um, have to be met. They do, again, weigh backgrounds, right? So, you know, somebody with a uh, a civil affairs background, I think, like we've talked about today, could, could obviously likely have the important skill sets. But, you know, is it also someone who um, is is looking to commit themselves for a period of time? Um, so actually, I've, I've kind of I'm myself, I'm an anomaly, I guess you could say, because uh, generally when you come on board, uh, they ask you to stay for up to two years, you know, up to that 36 month tenure. Um, unfortunately, I'm going to be leaving early because I got selected for brigade command. So yeah. if, if you are, which is a good thing, right? But if, if you are selected for a command like that, you can uh, come out of the community early. And so, you know, they do give you some flexibility there. Uh, but generally, if you're coming into this community, they try and have you at least stay for 36 months because uh, there are a whole bunch of training requirements, too, that you have to do internal to your position. Uh, you uh, get to go to uh, several FEMA classes. Uh, you get to go to DISCA uh, Phase Two, uh, which is run by R North generally. Um, and so there's there's a variety of uh, certifications that you have to do to become certified to be an EPLO, and that, and that can sometimes take several months. Um, they want to make sure that they can retain those folks for a period of time, as it takes you know time to to go out and recruit uh, talent to backfill the positions. So. Uh, but it is, again, a unique broadening assignment. Uh, you, you, you get to work with a variety of different individuals that you would never likely have exposure to in a strict um, civil affairs operational community, particularly uh, within the, the DISC environment. 
So I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, congratulations on your selection for Brigade Command. That's a Thank big you. deal. I think you've hopefully sold this to a lot of listeners about covered a lot of the, the pros. You also covered some of these cons, maybe uh, stretches where you have to really commit and the disruption possibly to a civilian career, but it might be very conducive to some people who are at the regional level, as you mentioned, maybe 03, 04, 05. And then certainly for 06s as they're toward the tail end of their career or for some yeah. of these E7s who are qualified. Yeah. Um, yeah. Feel free for anyone too to reach out. I know that, you know, my contact will be there. You can look me up on, uh, on, on Global. Uh, feel free to connect with me too if you want to be directed in the right direction. I can, uh, I can assist. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today was Colonel Marco Bongiovanni. We're speaking about the emergency preparedness liaison officer roles and the position that he's been taking on for the New York State. We'll include some notes in the show notes about what the EPO is and some directions for uh, Army and Marine Corps personnel and where they might be able to go. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the time and, uh, and thank you. Bob. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory. In civil affairs, your success depends on getting the right information to the right people at the right time. Whether it's foundational information for a team about to head out on a mission or putting together a map or other data visualization to brief a general or an ambassador, Tesla Government Solutions and staff can help. With Tesla Government's Knowledge Management Solutions, you're adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. LC38brand.com, the civil affairs lifestyle brand. A little bit of something for everybody. T-shirts, polos, shorts, hats, flags and posters for your walls, and stickers for everything else. Celebrating the heritage of civil affairs from the civil reconnaissance of Lewis and Clark through the monuments men of World War II and companies of Vietnam. Representing the present teams of the global war on terror, we have items for citizen soldiers of USA KPOC and warrior diplomats at Fort Bragg alike. LC38brand.com. It's cool to like your job.